the Beatles had this charm, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Where are we going, fellas? To the, to the top. top! What top? To the, to the very, very top. top! They had this chant, and John would say, where are we going, fellas? And the others, in an American accent, and the others would say, to the top, Johnny. Get the exact wording right. Um, where's that, fellas? To the toppermost of the poppermost, Johnny. <laughs> and that was their rallying call in when times were bad to kind of yes you know we're still here we're still together a lot of irony in it as well it was kind of done in a heavy american accent as a sender welcome to side b the american charts for september of 1963 uh, if you listen to side a the british invasion is very definitely taking over the british charts indeed the british invasion is well underway as is beatlemania i'm ed chen from when they was fab i'm kid o'toole from talk more talk and i'm martin Cobell from pods like us and when they was fab all right, so we move on to the American charts for September of 1963. I'm really not so impressed with a lot of these charts, but there are some interesting trends going on. Uh, in particular, we see the coming of several more soul and R&B artists, which would be very influential later on. Yeah, there are some debuts this week. Two artists who would become very significant as the years would go on. Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, a Philadelphia-based act. And as we all know, Patti LaBelle in particular would go on in the 70s to be a majorly important singer with her group, LaBelle. They were kind of a bit of funk, a bit of R&B, and their flamboyant costumes broke a lot of barriers in terms of gender inspired by the drag queen scene in, in uh, New York in the 70s. And so it was kind of a new act at the time, a, you know, a new kind of act. And Lady Marmalade, of course, was their biggest hit, inspired John Lennon even um, in a short we'll get there. We'll get there. To even pay tribute. So, um, you know, so, but that's how big they were. And then obviously in the 80s and beyond, Patty would go on to have a very successful solo career. And uh, so we are going to see her first hit on the charts. We are also going to see the OJs. Uh, the OJs became a huge symbol of the Philadelphia soul movement of the 70s, of course, uh, most famous for Backstabbers and uh, many, many other hits. I'm a huge OJ's fan, so I'm very excited to see their first charting single this week. So this isn't their first ever single to be released, but the first to make it on the charts. We are also going to talk about two songs that are significant R&B and soul records. 
one by Ray Charles, who we've talked about quite a bit on our show for obvious reasons, but this is a song called Busted, which earned him a Grammy. I would say it's a song that he is known for. And the other one is by The Impressions. We've talked about The Impressions as well in previous shows. And of course, Curtis Mayfield, the artistic director of The Impressions and their song, It's All Right. Everybody knows this song. Classic kind of gospel slash doo-wop kind of track. And it makes its debut on the American charts in September. So a lot of really significant soul and R&B music and artists that we are going to see on the charts in September 1963. Very excited to be talking about these in this episode. All right, so we start with the week of September 7th, 1963. At number 66, the aforementioned Busted by Ray Charles. Me and my family got to pack up and go, but I'll make a living just where I don't know, because I'm busted. I'm broke. This was actually originally meant as a country song, and the first version of it was done by Johnny Cash. Yep, and when you hear it, it's very different. Cotton is down to a quarter a pound, and I'm busted. I got a cow that went dry, and a hen that won't lay. A big stack of bills that get bigger each day. The county will haul my belongings away. I'm busted. Johnny Cash did it as more of a straightforward country song. It's almost like a lament. It's a traditional country song. And then you get Ray Charles' version. I mean, it's still about being broke, but... It's more defiant. This ended up winning a Grammy in 1963 for Best Rhythm and Blues Recording. It's Ray Charles. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can the man do any wrong? I don't think so. But it's just fascinating to compare his version with Johnny Cash's. And it just shows you how songs can be interpreted completely differently. Well, the song was written by Harlan Howard, who is a very well-known country songwriter. Amy Lou Harris, in her cover of For No One, actually quotes Harlan Howard, country music is three chords in the truth. Yep, I've heard that quote, and isn't that great? That summarizes it right there. There's a tremendous quote from Howard where he talks about the early days when he first started having some success as a songwriter. He hadn't ever received a royalty check larger than $27. Then one day he gets a check for $48,000. Wow. (laughs) And then three days later, he gets one for $52,000. So he had $100,000 when he'd never seen more than 20, 25 bucks in his entire life. That's quite a change. And that's in 1950s dollars. Mm-hmm. If anyone wants to send me a check like that, I'll be quite happy. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Then later, he was interviewed talking about what's changed, how has the scene moved on, and what... Howard would say is that to me it's simple pop music disappeared big bands disappeared first then pop singers everything turned to folk and then the Beatles who were great but then the heavy rock and metal things that most adults can't relate to but nonetheless he was a very influential 
country songwriter. Yep, absolutely. And I also just want to mention, we talked about it in the last episode, and I just wanted to recap it again, that Ray Charles just was a unique talent that could bridge so many genres. And this is another example of it. Country, R&B, blues, and Busted is another perfect example. All right, at number 74, Hello Heartache, Goodbye Love by Little Peggy March. It's another disappointing song from her, I think. (laughs) it's just all right it certainly tries to be dramatic you know it almost sounds like it was written for the stage or something or was trying to be written for the stage almost has a pseudo operatic quality and it definitely has touches of i will follow him like it's imitating parts of it. like okay we'll recap that record and try to have another hit but other than that nothing nothing that special but apparently it was an international hit for her. It it hit the top of the charts in Hong Kong, and it did ultimately peak at number 26, the Billboard Hot 100 here. Well, it hasn't aged very well. Let's put it that way. No, I agree. A lot of these records kind of haven't aged very well. Yeah, it's uh, no, I will follow him, that's for sure. (laughs) Were they attempting a Latino-style rhythm on this or something? Ever so slightly. It Mm -hmm. it didn't really grab me at all. No, No, I agree. Yeah, just wasn't as memorable. All right, at number 82, The Righteous Brothers with My Babe. Another record sort of in that transition phase before they would go all out with the blue-eyed soul. She never makes me cry. Here's why. She's my babe. She's my babe. Nothing could be better than to see her in a sweater and a real tight skirt that won't quit. Nothing could be better than to see her in a sweater and a tight skirt that won't quit, she won't for her phone. I love the lyric, though. <laughs> Nothing could be better than to see her in a sweater and a real tight skirt that won't quit. Now, that's you know. That's poetry right there. <laughs> that's poetry right there. Absolutely. Well done on those lyrics, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit rockier than what we normally think of from the Righteous Brothers. You know, I thought it was kind of fun. You know, I like the horns, the classic harmonies. You know, it kind of swings for what it is. It's a dance record, and it's fun. It's the follow-up to Little Latin Loopaloo, and it's in that vein, and for that, it's a lot of fun. And, of course, they would eventually link up with Phil Spector, and their sound would change a lot. But for early Righteous Brothers, it's just a fun, fun song. It's a pop record. It's a pop record, exactly. And for what it is, I kind of liked it. It's written by both of them, which is a strange one in itself. Both Bill and Bobby wrote together. Normally, if any of them wrote, it was Bill that wrote anything, usually. But both of them wrote it. And you can just picture them both having a laugh trying to come out with the lyrics for this song because they're just fun. Yeah, you just sense that from their delivery of the lyrics, the lyrics themselves. They were just having a good time. 
All right, at number 84, I'll Take You Home by The Drifters, the great lead vocal here. Mm. That's what makes the song. It's kind of an overproduced song ever so slightly, but the vocals save it. That's exactly what I was thinking. The vocals absolutely save the record, because otherwise it's not as distinctive. But of course, written by Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, real building. And yeah, it's not one of the Drifters' all-time most memorable songs, but they do it so well. And it's got a slight Latin flair. And as we've talked about on many of our episodes, that fits right in with the sound of the time when Latin percussion and rhythms were big. And I thought it was kind of a charming record. I still liked it, even though it wasn't one of their all-time most memorable. Yeah, it's a hit. <laughs> You're going to see more songs, at least one or two on this chart that we're talking about that Barry Mann's had a hand in where the better. I agree. Again, it's charming. It's a nice pop song, but yeah, this just isn't one of their most memorable. Well, another one that's not one of their most memorable. At number 89, the Shirelles with What Does a Girl Do? Again, I know I've been complaining about lyrics, particularly lyrics given to women to sing. It's another one of those. Yeah. It's a classic girl group sound of the time, but it's just not a standout. What's interesting, though, it was written by Ed Townsend, who would end up working with Marvin Gaye, and he co-wrote and co-produced the Marvin's classic hit, Let's Get It On, believe it or not, and worked with Marvin Gaye again on uh, his album, Hear My Dear. But this was definitely not a real stand-up. I mean, they're the Shirelles. They did it well, sang it well. There's not great lyrics, and it's almost to the level of being a trope. We were talking about it before we recorded this, that some of the girl group songs were getting to be a little formulaic, and this is a good example of that. All right, at number 93, Jan and Dean are back with Honolulu Lulu. (laughs) Surfer music is back. (laughs) We've talked a lot about that in these shows, and here's another example. Very Hawaii (laughs) 5-0. Yes. There's a little bit of the theme song of Hawaii 5-0 in there if you listen ever so carefully. Yep. Queen of the Surfer Girl. 
lyrics also, not Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. So, but, you know, typical Jan and Dean harmonies, which they were very good at. But it's not meant to be Shakespeare, to be fair. I mean, pop music had not come of age at this point. No. I had to do a double take because I thought, I looked at the writing of it and I was almost certain that it would have been Brian Wilson co-written, but it wasn't because it's got that feel to it, almost like an early Brian writing. Some of the Jan and Dean stuff, I mean, does sound very, very much like early Brian Wilson. I can understand that. It's a precursor, something that, that Ed just said about a Y50, wait till you get to the notes I've written for a later song. <laughs> oh, Okay. Okay, so the actual writers of the song were Jan Berry, Roger Christian, and Lou Adler. Lou Adler, who has a Beatles connection. Yes, indeed. It's for VJ's Hear the Beatles Tell All album. Adler decided to apply screaming and different noises from the live audiences to the recordings on Hear the Beatles Tell All, as well as various percussion by Hal Blaine, who, of course, we all know, mainly from The Wrecking Crew. So Lou Adler worked on Hear the Beatles Tell All for VJ. Yeah, really pretty interesting. And then, then Lou Adler would go on to co-found Dunhill Records. Mm-hmm. And he was the chief recording producer to, between 1964 and 1967. Beatle connections galore. All right, at number 97, our buddy's back, <laughs> this time on the American charts, with I'm Confessing. Yep. I mean, he scored hits. Both sides. Well, number 97, we won't quite call that a hit. Well, but it's just squishy. It's on the charts. Good old mm-hmm. Frank. Our old friend. It's doing slightly better than For Me To You, which had reached the bubbling under point. Yes. If you listen to our show from the fest, Dick Biondi had moved on to KRLA from Chicago, and he stirred up enough interest in For Me To You that... He actually got it on the KRLA charts for six weeks, which was enough airplay in a large enough market to get it to the lower reaches of the bubbling under charts on Billboard. So that's really the first time that the Beatles would be represented on the Billboard charts. Yeah, thanks to Dick Biondi. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then the other thing, right around this time is when George Harrison had his visit to Benton, Illinois. His sister was busy trying to pushed the Beatles records on the radio stations while George got to enjoy a good vacation in Illinois. But he went to the record store and said, have you heard of us? Never heard of you. <laughs> See, Illinois rocks. <laughs> Put him in his place. Yep. <laughs> All right. At number 100, the Chiffons with a love so fine. Written by the Tokens. Written and produced. Definitely doo-wop. The backing sounds a bit like Motown in terms of percussion. From now on, I won't be Another one that's not a lyrical gem. I agree. Definitely not on the level of He's So Fine. I do not like this nearly as much as He's So Fine. Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's not one of their best. All right, so we move on to the second week of September in 1963, September the 14th at number 87. There's Rick Nelson. I've gotten over it. I don't mind seeing another Rick Nelson song, especially this one, Fools Rush In. Mm-hmm. It would be and remains one of Rick's signature songs. Yep. 
Exactly. And this is a good one. One of Rick's better tracks, I think. Fools rush in where wise men never go. But wise men never fall in love. So how are they to know? Number 93, Your Baby's Gone Surfing from Dwayne Eddy. More surfing music, it's back. And of course, it has that classic Dwayne Eddy twangy guitar sound. who that girl singer is she sounds like straight out of the church i couldn't find out uh, nowhere is she credited or or anything it's also got a pretty good sax solo um in the middle classic Dwayne eddie sound and we do have a beatles connection here as well the co-writer of this song was a gentleman by the name of lee hazelwood mm-hmm. so years later lee hazelwood would be going out with a woman whose last name is Hokum. Actually, I don't know what her first name is. So they were together, and she was to get an offer to come down to New York and meet the Beatles. This would have had to have been in 68 during their Apple Records visit. Hokum was also a music producer, and the Beatles had heard some of her work and had invited her down to come and discuss producing some of the artists on the, at that point, new Apple label. Interesting. Didn't work out. It did not end well because Lee Hazelwood was a very possessive 60s sort of guy who wasn't going to let his woman go out and do this thing, especially with these Beatles, which, well, he was not a fan of. Ah, okay. Gotcha. That was an absolute no, says Hokum, who stormed out and went to New York anyway just for the experience. Lee was very possessive, and the Beatles were kind of intimidating to someone who likes to say he's not intimidated by anyone. Okay. Obviously, for whatever reason, they didn't click, and she never went to work for Apple. But it's an interesting glimpse into both the world of the 60s and what the Beatles were trying to do with Apple. Yeah. Wow. Interesting story. All right. At number 94, Nino Temple and April Stevens with Deep Purple, a great record. In the still of the night, once again I hold you tight. Though you're gone, your love lives on when moonlight beams. And as long as my heart will be, sweet lover will always be. Tempo and April Stevens were a brother and sister singing act from New York. 
and they signed as a duo with Atco Records. And they Beatle connection there as well. Yes, indeed, indeed. And they had a number of hits, and they earned a Grammy Award for Best Rock and Roll Record of the Year for this song, Deep Purple. Music journalist Richie Underberger has described the song as a great triumph, and they continued recording for years later, but they, you know, really didn't achieve great success. But it's a very unusual record for the time. I mean, it doesn't really sound like it's from 1963. Not at all. Not at all. I like the comment from Richie Underberger that this was one of the greatest Phil Spector-inspired productions of all time. You know, particularly we've talked about, Phil was maybe not the best at doing the wall of sound. He gave the sound to other people, and other people were really able to do more with it than he was. This was definitely influenced by Phil Spector. But yeah, I mean, I was just so surprised when when I was listening to this, because I just thought, this is from 1963? (laughs) I mean, it just sounds so out of its time. Well, I actually kind of think that about another record, which we're going to get to, which is one that you don't care for, but (laughs) oh well. The other thing to be mentioned is Nino Temple would replace King Curtis with John Lennon, and Nino Temple is the one who's playing the sax on the rock and roll LP. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Beatles references everywhere. Yeah, that's right. What did you think of this record, Martin? It was my first time hearing the song. I really enjoyed it. Uh, We both enjoyed it, actually. Me and Louise really enjoyed it. And Louise sort of like perked up and like, oh, what's that? And yeah, loved the song so much. First hearing, like I said, yeah. Yeah, I had never heard of this song before this. So it's a great thing about this show. Yeah, I'd heard of it, but... I hadn't given it the attention it deserved. Yeah. It's amazing where an heavy metal band can get their names from. That's right. (laughs) Deep Purple. (laughs) That's right. Who knew? All right. At number 95, as we had mentioned at the top of the show, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells with Down the Aisle, the wedding song. This is a straight gospel song, really. It sure is, isn't it? And boy, you can pick Patti LaBelle out immediately. You know, her voice didn't really change much over time. This was their first hit single. It became a crossover hit. It was on the King record label, by the way, and was really a doo-wop ballad. That kind of makes sense when you say it's straight out of the church, because of course, doo-wop was an outgrowth from gospel. And It features Nona Hendrix and Sarah Dash and Cindy Birdsong. Now, Cindy Birdsong, of course, would later depart the group to join the Supremes when uh, Florence Ballard left the group, not, of course, voluntarily. And then Nona Hendrix and Sarah Dash would stay on and would later form LaBelle with Patti LaBelle. But yes, it absolutely sounds straight out of the church, and you really hear Patti LaBelle's strong vocals, and as I said, really doesn't change her style that much over the years. And this is kind of another one of these commitment songs. There's just too many of them this month. Yep, exactly. It's yet another one, <laughs> but it's really mainly significant because it's Patti LaBelle. Just to hear the words 
at least some Beatles connections. In 1977, Patti LaBelle in Rolling Stone Magazine's 10-year anniversary special would do a cover of Polythene Pam. It's a great cover, yes, and it it's Patti LaBelle. It's Patti LaBelle, darn it. I mean, yeah, what a cover. I mean, it was great. It works. <laughs> You never would have guessed. And it's like, you watch it and it's like, that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And she would later, by the way, I think it was like in 89 or so, the Who did a version of Tommy. They put on, and it may have been pay-per-view originally or something, but then it was later aired on Fox or, you know, something. And a bunch of celebrities came on, to, you know, sing guest artists to do bits from Tommy. I know Phil Collins came on, Billy Idol, a number of others. And Patti LaBelle, did the acid queen. It was awesome. Wow. She killed well, it. Well, if anybody, anybody's going to take over from <laughs> Tina Turner. Tina. Yep. Patty LaBelle killed it. <laughs> and so, but she did a great job on Paul V. Pam. And then one of my favorite clips of all time, uh, John Lennon was doing a, a foreign interview. I think it was a German interview. Although I, I have the whole interview on, on tape and the, Interviewer asks him a question about disco, and John just sort of breaks into little Lady Marmalade. Disco soul music, the new yeah, the, it's yeah, great. That's what yeah, I've got, got a surprise for you. Yep, and I, yeah, I've seen just that little clip before, and yeah, he really liked that song, obviously. And yeah, there's about another 30 seconds of it out there. Oh, really? He plays close to a full minute of it. Oh, wow. He gets into it, so. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All right. At number 96, again from the top of the show, Lonely Drifter by the OJs. Mm-hmm. Yep, and this is their first chart appearance. And this is, of course, before they hooked up with Gamble and Huff, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, and the Philadelphia Soul Sound.
like here they sound a little bit like the Drifters, not just because the song is called Lonely Drifter. Uh, they really do sound a bit like them. This was co-written by Eddie Levert, one of the members of the OJs, and they were with Imperial Records at this point, and they cut some songs with Imperial and were mildly successful, but they didn't have huge hits. But of course, by the late 60s, when Gamble and Huff formed Philadelphia International, and then came Backstabbers and all the the songs we know and love. But it's really interesting to hear this song because, you know, this was the like the beginning of their career and they were still trying to sort of find their sound. And it just sounds so different from how we know them. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, comparing this to the earlier Drifters song, I actually thought the orchestration was nicer on this and the whole arrangement of this song was actually better than the Drifter's song. The Drifter song we heard earlier, the orchestration was a little overdone. Yeah. And I think it was more restrained on this one. I agree. All right. At number 99, Mr. Wishingwell from Nat King Cole, the perfect velvet voice here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's Nat King Cole. Even though this isn't one of his best, it's still... The way he sings, he can make any song sound wonderful. This was, I believe, the B-side to That Sunday, That Summer. Then our eyes met What a feeling I found her Now I'm reeling, oh, thank you Thank you Mr. Wishing Well I like that Sunday, that summer better, but what a voice he had. Wow. Well, and it's kind of getting out of the pop mode. You had previously expressed that you weren't real fond of his pop mode. Yeah, like Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer and those Rambling Rose and and those songs. I liked it better when he started getting out of that mode and into more jazz-oriented stuff. By 63, was, you know, later in 63, was starting to move away from that, though, like the super commercial stuff. So apologies to those who like that period. Not my thing. All right, at number 100, a weird, weird (laughs) record. Another one where I wonder how exactly they got away with it. Your Boyfriend's Back by Bobby Comstock and the Counts. We talked about Answer Records last month. I'm going to tell him just what you tried to do. This isn't just an answer record, kind of like we were talking about with Two Silhouettes last month and Del Shannon. They just rip off the whole song. (laughs) And boy, does it get dark. (laughs) You think people talk about uh, the Beatles' Run for Your Life? You think that's dark? (laughs) Listen to this. I mean, your boyfriend's back. You better take a vacation and find another way to save your reputation. Yeah, you better find a place to hide. Now that he's found out you lied, yeah, it's your turn to get hurt. Little girl, you shouldn't flirt. Now go find a place to hide. What? Holy cow. That is some dark stuff. Yeah, misogynist watch? Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. And I think we can say none of us had ever heard this song before we were preparing for the show. Mm-hmm. And I'll never hear it again. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and as you said, it talk about a ripoff. I mean, it doesn't even attempt to be different other than the dark lyrics, of course. All right. We move on to the 21st of September, 1963. Get your seatbelts ready, folks. We're going to hear something from the queen of all Beatles media herself, <laughs> Dr. Kid O'Toole. At number 65... Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs with Sugar Shack. It's a song that we all know. And before we let Kit start on her rant here, uh, I want to say that the Fireballs are the same Fireballs that Norman Petty hired to back up Buddy Holly and all those posthumous records. And it's Norman Petty who's playing that organ on this record. And everybody calls it the Sugar Shack. It is now your turn to. Uh... <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, everybody. More apologies. I hate this song so much. I, and part of it is just a quick personal story. My very first job in high school, I worked at a jewelry store in the suburb next to the one I live in now. And they had an oldie station. Dick Biondi used to be on this station. Slight connection here then. Magic 104.3. And they had the station playing uh, all day, every day. And I loved it. Loved the station. Loved Dick Biondi. But this song, Sugar Shack, played all the time. This and Cry Like a Baby. Those two songs played on that station a lot for some reason. And so when I was working that summer in that shop, I heard Sugar Shack Every damn day. <laughs> <laughs> that organ gets pretty annoying pretty quickly. Yeah, I will say exactly. that. Exactly. So, eh, 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 eh. oh, I mean, that haunted my dreams. After that summer, I'm like, I can never listen to this song again. <laughs> yeah, that organ part just really gets to me. So, I know this was a huge hit back in the day. I, I totally get it. But this song just gets on my nerves. And it doesn't sound like something from 1963. No, it doesn't. I will say that. It's a catchy pop song. It's memorable for me for all the wrong reasons, but it's memorable. And then in addition to overdubbing on the Buddy Holly posthumous records, Norman Petty also had the Fireballs play with Carolyn Hester and Arthur Alexander. So, you know, oh, wow. they, they had their credentials. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Those of you who like it, hey, you do you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your PTSD. When I hear that organ part, it triggers PTSD. Absolutely. <laughs> Did it influence Love Shack by the B-52s? Oh, good question. <laughs> Louis said the same <laughs> thing when we were listening. <laughs> now that song is a jam. Love Shack, I can listen to. <laughs> Someone's going to merge the two together and do a mashup. Oh, man. <laughs> Too funny. All right. At number 82, a song which the Beatles played in Hamburg and Paul McCartney sang lead on, Red Sails in the Sunset, here by Fats Domino. It's a very old song. It's actually from the 30s originally. Red sails in the sunset Way out on the sea Oh, carry my loved one Fats 
Fats Domino puts the Fats Domino stamp on it. That classic New Orleans rhythm, his piano. I think it's a little overproduced with the backing vocals and strings. I think it drowns out his voice at times, unfortunately. Yeah, again, I would have just gone with him and the piano. Yes, agreed. The unmistakable sound of Fats on the vocal and piano. Backing vocals well over the top. And if they'd have just stripped it back to just the basics and taken all that away and made it a classic Fats Domino lineup, it would have been a great song. That's exactly what I thought. All right, at number 90, Jackie Wilson with Baby Get It and Don't Quit. It makes you get up and shake your rear end a little bit. That's right. I just feel like this song would work way better live. You're looking good out there on the floor. Yeah. Now, baby, get it when I count to four. Hey, I would have loved to have seen him perform this live. As you're listening to this, you could just visualize him dropping to his knees and sliding across the floor and getting the audience to clap along. I mean, you can just see it. I don't think it works as well as a single to just sit and listen to it. I mean, it still sounds great, but as I was listening to this, I thought, man, I wish I could have seen him do this live. You know, I bet he just ripped up the stage with this song. All right, at number 100, Washington Square from the Village Stompers. It's the trad jazz thing on this side of the pond. Dixieland, and it really didn't make nearly as much of an impact here as it did over on the British side. Yeah, I just found this interesting because it's really one of the few times I've seen any kind of equivalent of trad jazz here. It's interesting, the first part of this song, where you hear the banjo, and it almost sounds a little bit folk ish, like kind of hootenanny folk. But then, of course, when the second half comes in with the saxophone trumpets and and all, then it starts sounding way more Dixieland. The first part, I just felt like, okay, this could kind of fit in with the folk sound that's still going around. We're not hearing as much folk in this episode than we've heard in previous ones. It's interesting that even in the American charts, we're still seeing some traditional jazz in there. But again, not for much longer. Richard Lester directed It's Trad Dad, which did indeed get a release here in the States. So there was at least that much interest 
and you love the title of the film on this side of the pond, Ring-A-Ding Rhythm. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> That's groovy. I love it. I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is September the 28th of 1963 at number 70 the latest from mary wells you lost the sweetest boy It's her voice that saves this record. Absolutely. And there's another noteworthy thing about this record. The background singers. Yeah. uh, The Supremes and The Temptations. Both. Which is kind of rare. It's Holland Dozier Holland who wrote this. It's not one of the most memorable of, of her songs. Also interesting to note that by the following year, Mary Wells would leave Motown. You know, Motown wasn't treating her well and wasn't paying her enough. And she moved to another label and... Never had the same success again. But, you know, at this point, she was still basically the first lady of Motown. Wouldn't last too much longer. Obviously, the Funk Brothers kill it on the backing track. I like the call and response and the gospel-tinged vocals, but it's not definitely her most memorable yeah. Uh, Dusty Springfield did a cover of this, which I like a lot. Oh. And again, these lyrics. Yes, your loss is my gain, because straight into my arms he came. You want every boy to pass you by. Now the hurt's on you. Now the hurt's on you. Your little scheme backfired. It's true. Now tears of regret just covered your face. Yeah. And that's Holland Dozier Holland, who, of course, would end up resurrecting the Supremes and, you know, writing incredible stuff for them. Even Holland Dozier Holland can write some clunkers. It's not necessarily that it's clunkers, it's just all very tropey and yes. of the time. Yep, for sure. I think we've mentioned it before, but Mary Wells did do a whole cover album of Beatles songs called Love Songs to the Beatles. Yes, indeed. And of course, the Beatles were big fans of uh, Mary Wells. All right. At number 74, there's Brenda Lee with The Grass is Greener. This is more of a country song. I've really grown to like her. She just has such a powerful, powerful voice. When you were mine But I threw it away I thought the grass Was greener there Where I wondered one day This ballad was a nice showcase. Such an emotional vocal. You really sense her heartbreak i just think she was just such an amazing and versatile singer i mean you know she could sing country she could sing pop she could sing rockabilly what a phenomenal talent i'm definitely going to check out more of her stuff at number 81 the song that leslie gore preferred although it would not be anywhere near as big a hit she's a fool she's a fool
Yeah, this was a, a song that at first I didn't recognize by just the title. And then as soon as I played it, I thought, ah, I know this. Yeah. Magic 104, Dick Biondi. He used to play it. <laughs> <laughs> but this one didn't give me PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't play it nearly as frequently. No, so. no. <laughs> Clever lyrics. I agree. Clever lyrics. She's a fool. She has his love, but treats him cruel. You don't know it, but she cheats on him with a boy like that. It's such a sin. I would never be untrue. I would never make him blue. I mean, I think that's really good writing. Yeah, good pop song. All right, at number 82, Crossfire by the Orlons. I mean, the Orlons as a whole aren't really remembered all that much, and this is probably one of the less remembered of their canon. And I believe this is the last hit they had. It's, of course, on Cameo Parkway. We've talked about Cameo Parkway, and it's kind of tenuous connections uh, to the Beatles. But it's a dance record, but I think it's a fun one. I actually like the organ and the horns and driving drums. It has a little bit of a Motown sound to it, and I think it even has a touch of jazz to it. It's, it's ever so slightly disposable. The lyrics are very much dance record lyrics. Oh, for sure. You know, get up and move your feet now that kind of stuff but as far as the instrumental aspects of it i do like that and i found out something interesting two of the members of the orlans took part in a benefit single in philadelphia that was a cover of mull of kintyre huh yep (laughs) and it's on youtube and it was with other philadelphia acts so there you go slight connection there co-written by barry mann All right, we're going to have a much bigger connection here after this next song. Yes. At number 86, The Impressions, It's All Right. I'm not quite sure why you put this on here, Kit. Well, it's just that it is a absolutely legendary record, a very well-known song in R&B and soul circles. Curtis Mayfield, who was just a, a genius as a writer, producer, and artist, and also from Chicago, yay. That's not the reason. That's not the reason. <laughs> I, I put, a reason, but not the reason. reason. but not the reason. You know, we talked about the impressions before with their single Gypsy Woman. I think we talked about that in a previous episode. I'm not sure. Yep. Uh, this yep. is the follow-up to that, and it's all right. And Martin, we've talked about this before that I think we've brought up Huey Lewis in the News. Huey Lewis in the News did a great cover of It's All Right, <laughs> and they've done it in concert. B-side of Power of Love, was it? I think it was, but this is one of their signature songs. When lights are low 
when you move it slow It sounds like a moan And it's alright Whoa, it's alright Now listen to the beat Kind of pat your feet You got soul And everybody knows That it's alright Whoa, it's alright very influenced by doo-wop and definitely a bit of gospel because the Impressions started as a gospel group. Jerry Butler was an original member, but not at this point in 63. We'll make a slight connection here. Paul McCartney was definitely influenced by uh, Curtis Mayfield, as evidenced by the song he did um, <laughs> on uh, Chaos and Creation. Anyway, I think. Yeah, yeah, we've made that and connection made before, that connection, but that's okay. But that's okay. But just in general, the impressions were a very important R&B group in terms of civil rights and just music in general. So not a super big connection to the Beatles, but this is just such a big record that I just think that made its debut this week. So just And it certainly fits in with the general sort of uh, coming of soul right. that we have spoken of. Exactly. At number 94, well, I mean, really from here on out, we got a couple of pretty significant Beatles connections here, but at number 94, Jenny Brown by the Smothers Brothers, the very young Smothers Brothers. Teenagers need understanding. They're in a very difficult time of life. And there's a lot of people who sing just for teenagers, and they're very, very successful. The Beatles are the... Are the are, they're as successful as you could get. They, they have beetle wigs. Right. They and have if, if, if you and I ever get that popular, we couldn't have Smothers wigs. <laughs> no, we couldn't. Because of our hairline. No, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have plastic ears. As I was walking by the shore, I happened there to see A woman's form lying there as still as still could be the dress she wore was gingham blue, her hair all tumbled down. It might have been my own true love, my sweetheart, Jenny Brown. Kind of an odd song. Now, it was interesting. I couldn't find online, I don't know if you guys did, the 1963 recording, which is on the charts there. I could find the 1964 one from their album and they mentioned the Beatles in that recording but the 63 one that charted here they couldn't have mentioned it because the Beatles hadn't really reached American shores yet kind of weird but maybe maybe they were listening to the five vests at the time you know yeah right (laughs) (laughs) anyway so Tommy and Dick would show up throughout the 60s and 70s as Beatle compatriots Mm mm-hmm Yes, indeed. Of course, uh, they were there during the bed in for peace. Well, and and before that, George showed up on the Smothers Brothers show. Mm -hmm. The the Revolution and Hey Jude promos premiered in the States on their show. That's right. I forgot about that. And then, of course, the infamous uh, when John and Harry Nielsen and all of them. (laughs) We'll get there, but the Gippies a Chance recording. The thing I love about that is Tommy Smothers comes in and is like, oh, I'm going to impress John Lennon. I'm going to play some really fancy guitar. (laughs) And so, you know, they're sitting on the bed. They're going through the song. And Tommy just goes out and plays this, what he called virtuoso. We weren't there. We don't know. But he played this fancy 
little riff on the guitar. And John just sort of turned and looked at him. No, no, don't do that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, just Uh, play it. Be warned, Martin. Just play it the way I wrote it, Tommy. (laughs) If I wanted you to play it another way, I would have written it like that. Sorry. Had to do that. I had to give you something to quote here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not a great impression, but it is an impression. (laughs) I got to give Martin something to cap every show. Yeah. I've got to go back Mm -hmm. to capping. (laughs) (laughs) So Tommy listened to John and played it simple, and he does indeed appear in the video and on the record of Give Peace a Chance. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. Then later, Ringo would appear on... The Smothers Brothers show and perform the No No song. A fairly inebriated Ringo performing that song. <laughs> Poor Ringo. No. Yeah, in in the seventies he <laughs> he was out there playing the No No song, and well, he wasn't listening to the lyrics. I was going to say how ironic. And then there is the reference at the Troubadour. Dick and Tommy were doing their comeback, and John Lennon and Harry Nilsson were. Drinking Brandy Alexander's. A.K.A. milkshakes. <laughs> Which I enjoy, by the way. I, I know when to stop, but I do enjoy the Brandy Alexander's. John Lennon got me into those. They are very tasty beverages. Mm, just have to be careful. I know when to stop. Yes. <laughs> We're not sponsored. <laughs> John Lennon would say that he, he always liked Dick, but Tommy was, well, an a-hole, let's, shall we say. Ooh. Ooh really? Yeah. That was how the heckling began, because Harry just egged John on after he said that. Oh. And so they got louder and louder, and some people asked John less than politely to just shut up, and well, that is how that evening proceeded. Yes. Yeah, lots of Smothers Brothers connections. You smothered with them. I'm not going to comment on that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, yet another significant Beatles reference. At number 95, Nick Teen and Al K. Hall by Rolf Harris, a ripoff of his own Tiny Kangaroo and Down Sport. Yep. Yep. Take my advice, this smoking is nice and the drinking is really lush. As you can see, there's no change in me. I'm still pure as the driven slush. Well, I never gargled, I never gambled, I never smoked at all. Oh, oh, until I met my two good amigos, Nicotine and Al K. Hall. Nicotine and Al K. Hall. Pretty corny. I don't know why this was any kind of. Well, I don't think it was a big hit. This is the American Charles. This is yeah. the American chart. And when he's out there shouting for Nick and Al, it was like, is this the chipmunks or what? <laughs> and George Martin produced this. As we had mentioned on the British side, George actually had managed to get on the American charts this month. And here he is. Yeah, there he is. I bet he's happy. Well, not happy enough. It will take another few months to sate George Martin's desire for world domination. Yes, that's true. <laughs> All right, at number 96, another one from Brenda Lee, Sweet Impossible You. Sweet Impossible You.
that's just the way it sounds But you go on And I'll find someone Though I don't know who I like the grass is greener better, but she has such sass. I like her voice on this. I mean, I think, you know, her voice saves the song. We're saying that a lot this month, aren't we? Yeah, Yeah, really. (laughs) That's kind of a recurring thing. But I like her performance on the song. But as I said, I think I like grass is greener better. But hey, she's just such a great performer that it saves the song. Yep. Kudos to her for writing it herself. Mm -hmm, That's right. On this particular song, you know, maybe the songwriting wasn't as strong, but what a voice. But I mean, in general, there are a couple of really well-written songs, but the American charts are just filled with uh, not poor songs, but just weakly written songs. Yeah. Under, undercooked songs, songs that very much needed another iteration. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. At number 99... Point Panic by the Surfaris. Once again, trying to cash in on their own wipeout. Yeah, and the surfing trend, of course. It turns out Point Panic is an area in Hawaii, as I wondered if that was referring to something in particular, and I found out it is a famous surf spot in uh, in Hawaii, you know, known for treacherous conditions. So that, you know, the beginning with the kind of screaming and historic, hysterical laughter in the waves. So there you go. Um you know, of course. But again, it's a wipeout reference. Yeah, exactly. Also a wipeout reference. You know, the guitars in it are great, as always. Um, but, you know, we've heard this before. When we were listening to this, Louise actually said, Book em, Dano. <laughs> <laughs> so there's our Hawaii 5 over. There you there go. That's the second one, isn't it? <laughs> I mentioned it, and Martin said it would come up again, and here it is. Here it is. There it is. There it is. So. All right, and we're going to end with the song at number 100 that gave us all a good giggle. (laughs) Uh, This is uh, quite a song. Oh, Oh dear. And, well, it's Bobby Rydell, so, I mean, the song he influenced sounds so much more dangerous than this one. (laughs) I mean, She Loves You is like, John Lennon can make the most innocent line just sound so dangerous and and here's bobby rydell singing let's make love tonight and oh It 
is just so pitiful sounding. Yep. Apologies to Bobby Rydell fans. <laughs> but Let, let's not make love tonight. Thanks. No. Yeah. I'll have a cup of tea. Thanks. It sounds like a little washed up drowned puppy. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh no, we have to save the we have to save the poor puppy. Or, as I mentioned to to Kit, it sounds like someone begging to lose his virginity. Yeah, I mean, it's just like if he's trying to seduce this woman, it is so not working. <laughs> the cha 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 backing vocals, I hate those. It is just the blandest pop song I've ever heard. It is just like the epitome of this period of just a by-the-numbers pop song, from the lyrics to the vocal. I mean, I'm sorry, Bobby Rydell. To the arrangement. To the arrangement. It's just the most bland, teen idol pop song of the time. It, It really is. I mean, I just thought when I heard, you know, was listening to this, I'm like, this is just absolutely, we've been talking about formulaic. This is it. This is the perfect advertisement for, yeah, something needed to happen. Everyone likes to talk about Kennedy and the Kennedy assassination being the thing which would make the Beatles really zoom through the U.S. I think this song may be the thing that made the Beatles really zoom through the U.S. (laughs) Well, I mean, seriously. I mean, I think I mentioned this to you guys. You listen to this and then you think, man, when I want to hold your hand, hit the charts... In 64, I now fully understand why people were just like, thought, what a breath of fresh air this is and how different it sounded. When you hear this, when you hear Let's Make Love Tonight, the Beatles sounded completely different. People talk about the Stones and how dangerous the Stones sound. John Lennon and I Want to Hold Your Hand, he's singing very sweet, very innocent lyrics, but you know what he's thinking. Exactly. Yeah, there's an edge to it. And when they later heard Please Please Me, the pent-up energy and and all that. And no wonder they sounded so different and and teenagers were so excited and all that. I mean, it was like, enough of this. As we've been kind of saying through this whole show, the American charts just, in general, are not that great this month. And don't get us wrong. I mean, those who are listening who are first-generation fans, I mean, we're not saying that all the music was bad or anything. I mean, we've talked about Motown artists. Beach Boys, there were artists that were great. Well, know. and Patti LaBelle and the OJs. Exactly, I mean, you know, the beginnings of them. And, you know, so we're not saying all the music was bad or anything, but... But but in general, mm-hmm. of the charts we've gone through the last few months on the American side, this has been a less exciting grouping of songs. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of, we love the performers, and we even love individual performances, but they are kind of wasted on not-so-great material. Yep. All right, Martin, you want to close us out on this show? Uh, anything to say about the American charts for September of 1963? Yeah, one of the best things I think, and I'm sure Kit agrees with this, what's going on with it with soul music in these charts, particularly for this month, is incredible. Um, but also, you know, the amount of acts who are in transitional periods, like we mentioned with Righteous Brothers, where they're doing what they're doing, and we know that they will soon change when Phil Spector takes over. All right. Very good. So we will be back soon with October as we roll into year two, the year that they kick the bitch in, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Talk to you soon. See you next time. <laughs>
Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.